God has given us pastors who get to teach, to work hard at doing that well. We've got another year of doing this together. I'm excited, really excited about it, um, about sharing gospel life with you and about continuing to center ourselves around the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. If we're going to do that well as a people, one of the ways that the Bible talks about doing that is to walk in step with the truth of the gospel, that there is a rhythm to how, how God works in salvation and in us, that we want to walk in step with that. The guys in our pastor track are doing a monthly this month on the theme of conflict. Nobody tells you this when you're headed into pastoral ministry. Then you get there and you realize it's one big conflict. There's hard decisions to make and there's sins to correct and there's teams to try and have unity among and there's strategies to plan and there's doctrinal stances to work out and there's wolves to fight And all of this involves conflict to one degree or another. All of it is also done as sinners, among sinners. It makes things even harder. And so we're working with these men who may plant and pastor churches through us to say, how can we be gospel-centered in dealing with conflict? Now, I say that to say that one of the texts that I have them working through is about a fight, a conflict that took place among two apostles in the book of Acts. Paul had to oppose Peter to his face. Peter had been eating with Gentile Christians, but then when the the intimidating, power-broking Jewish Christians came along, he, he stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Paul knew that this was no good, and so there was conflict resolution by means of Paul stepping into Peter's face and opposing him to his face. And he said to him, you are not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Feel that? What does it mean to walk in step with the truth of the gospel? What what are those rhythms? Well, to start this year off, my first sermon with you guys, we're going to go old school and simple and just work on the central rhythm of what it means to be gospel people. And that is the rhythm of death and resurrection, of giving up sacrificing one kind of life in order to gain a much more beautiful, much more glorious life of dying in order to live. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Let me read the scripture to you and then we'll pray. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, will 
find it. Let's pray together. Father, we're your people. This is amazing that you've covenanted with us. But we are headed for glory with you. And we get to enjoy that now. I pray that you would teach us how that works, what this rhythm is that we can walk in together and turn our hearts to want to get there. That will only happen by a miracle of your grace. So come by your spirit and do it in us. I pray that you would. Amen. Okay, so we are working through Mark's gospel. It's been a year. We're going to keep going until the summertime and we'll be done. This whole time we have been watching Jesus do some work. Crazy stuff. Authoritative teaching. Mind-blowing miracles. Instantaneous healings. Powerful exorcisms. And in this whole story, we have felt this undercurrent of this question. Here it is. Who is this guy? Who, who can show up and start to do these things? Now, we know the answer, but in the flow of the gospel itself, the answer to that question had not been revealed in the text until the one before this. This is what Pastor Joey preached on before Christmas. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And on behalf of the team... And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, the Christ. We believe that you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, which is wild. Yes, I am the promised one that the scriptures talk about. You're looking at him, this carpenter turned rabbi. It's me. But keep it quiet for now. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, I'm the King anointed by God to redeem His people. The beautiful text of Scripture, awesome. Now here's what happens at this point in the Gospel. This whole time it's been going in a straight line, perfectly straight to this confession. This guy who's been doing work is the Messiah and the Christ. And now, a story that had been going perfectly straight for a long time takes the craziest, most confusing, unexpected left turn. It's crazy. You know when you're using your GPS, if I had one, I've been in some cars where this happened. You know when you're in your friend's car and he's using his GPS and you're supposed to take a left turn on Elm Street? Take a left turn on Elm Street. But then you take a right turn and the GPS gets really confused for a couple seconds there. You almost expect it to go, hold on, hold on, stop, turn the... But there's a pause and the screen flickers and then... The directions pick up after that crazy wrong turn that you just took. That is the feeling of this text of Scripture. I need you to feel this because that's what's happening here. Jesus does something, says something that no one expected him to say to happen. I don't know what the very last thing you would expect me to come into this pulpit this morning and say to you would be. Like if I rolled here and said, hey, I had a wicked good time this weekend at this Yankee Candle fundraiser. Oh, I can still smell. It's just, I didn't know which one to buy. I just came home with bags of candles. No, okay? If I told you I was headed with Grace to vacation at College Station, Texas, and I was excited we were going to cow tip and line dance, you would, that ain't right, Cruz. Something's wrong. Whatever it is, take that thing. Crank it up 200 times. And you are getting what it would have been like for these disciples to have heard Jesus say these things. After affirming that, yes, I am God's king, 
he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. Okay, so Jesus began to teach them. Did you hear that? This is not something he has mentioned to them before because it wasn't time yet. Now that he's been seen to be the Christ, he's going to bring them in on what that is going to mean for him. Don't forget that for the disciples, Jesus saying, yes, I am the Christ, would have been amazing, thrilling, wonderful news. You know when you hear that your team just traded for like the superstar player and you just get real excited? Do you remember 2008 and a half when the Celtics traded for Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett? Everybody around here was just like, ooh, this is going to be good. Okay, maybe you're not a hoops person, you're a movie person. Have you ever had your favorite actor or actress get the lead role in a movie that's built on a book that you loved? These two things are coming together. What happens in your soul? You just go, this is going to be awesome. Maybe it's like when you found out that Ikea was coming to Somerville. And you were like, oh, they put the train stuff and everything. This is, this is what it would have felt like for Peter and these disciples. This is where they would have been after this confession and affirmation. He's the Messiah. And here's the kind of thing that the disciples were expecting Jesus to now say to them in the wake of this announcement. Something like this anyway. Okay, now that you know who I am, here's the game plan. First thing we got to do, take care of business and depose of this ridiculous puppet king, Herod. He is not God's people's king. I am. Next, we're going to get all of Israel behind me because I am their Messiah, especially the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and people who had religious influence and political power. All of Israel is going to rally into my train. We're going to mobilize a military operation because we need to take care of business and drive these unclean pagan Romans out of our lives, out of the city of God, out of authority, out of Jerusalem. And then we're going to get my headquarters set up, and it is going to be a sweet pad. We're going to have a coronation parte. You're going to love it. And then we're going to head to God's temple, and we are going to reestablish her, and we're going to purify her. And it's going to look around here like it did in the days of King Solomon. That's what they are expecting Jesus to say. That's what they thought Messiah meant. We had Pastor Matt read from Daniel 7, the prophecy about the Son of Man. We already heard the words, he would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Nowhere. In any of that time period's documentation, leading up to the time of Christ, was anyone connecting Messiah with suffering? They're expecting Jesus to say, glory is coming. My first step, the first place I go, will be victory. Vanquishing of enemies, great honor for you, my right-hand men, comfort and ease and fame, an earthly kingdom. But that's not what we get, is it? What do you get? You get Jesus saying, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I'm going to die. Israel is not going to rally 
behind me. In fact, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes will be the ones who send me to my death. I'm not going to walk into comfort and glory. I'm going to walk into rejection and suffering and death. Now, how are Peter and the disciples going to respond to these words of Jesus? This insistence that the rhythm is not straight to glory, that the rhythm is death, then resurrection. Not very good, right? In fact, do you notice that they can't even hear the resurrection part the first time he starts talking in this way? I mean, not only is it unintelligible to them at this point, remember that theologically these Jews believed, some of them anyway, in a resurrection that was coming for everyone all at once. No one even thought that there was going to be a resurrection of one person prior to and enabling the final resurrection. Never heard of that. But the words, and after three days will rise, they don't even register because the suffering and rejection and death part is so shocking. Have you ever had this conversation with someone where they just start talking some kind of crazy talk to you and you just go, I don't even know what you're saying right now. I can't even hear you right now. Stop it. This is what happens with the disciples. As soon as they hear, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die, they're done listening. They, They can't even get their mind around that other part. It is the opposite of everything that their human nature and that their reading of the scriptures and that their natural selves wanted to hear. Don't forget that these guys knew about danger in their day, right? They had seen holy people acting and hoping that God would step in and bring deliverance only to be crucified outside of Jerusalem. To hear Jesus, their guy, say that he was not going to avoid or escape that danger, but that he was going to walk straight into it, right into the teeth of it, Messiah doesn't get killed by the authorities. And if he does, it proves that he was a false Messiah. And that's bad news for you, Jesus, and that would be bad news for us. And so what is their first response? No way. Can't be right. We don't want us or you to walk that road. This is crazy talk. And so what does the ringleader Peter do? He takes Jesus aside, and he starts to rebuke him. The text dovetails these things. Jesus began to teach about this rhythm of death, and Peter began to rebuke and renounce and refuse it. That word rebuke is very, very, very intense here. This is not Peter just kind of get clarification. This is Peter looking at Jesus and, and accusing him of making an error that is Evil and satanic. Rebuke is a word for dealing with demons in this gospel. No way, Jesus. What are you talking about? That can't be it. We will not let you walk that way. That can't be God's rhythm. And how does Jesus respond to Peter's rebuke? It says that he turned and he saw the disciples. He saw that they were with Peter. Yeah, stop that. We're not letting you walk into suffering and death. Come on now. He sees that, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't quietly explain. He doesn't go back over it. Jesus rebukes back, same word. Only this time, he makes it explicitly clear that what Peter and the disciples are suggesting is 
terribly evil and satanic at its core. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's not that Satan had somehow overtaken you know, Peter's body and voice and mind. It's that this plan, you guys, this must, the Son of Man must, this plan is so important and so crucial and so necessary. And it is also so hard and so difficult and so frightening because of those two things, it's necessity and it's difficulty. Any opposition to that plan and that rhythm is satanic opposition. Always, every time. Satan is the Greek word that's just transliterated from Hebrew, Satan. It means adversary, one who opposes. And so by addressing Peter and the disciples in this way, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is saying, look, if you refuse to embrace the rhythm of dying before you rise to life, if you refuse the rhythm of self-denial, if you are wanting me to find some other road to walk as Messiah that doesn't lead to the cross, you are against the plan of God, against what needs to be done to save Israel and save the world, and I refuse to allow opposition to that plan. See, Jesus knows what's happening here. He knows how strong the temptation is going to be for him to bail out and cop out and refuse the Father's will and change up the rhythm and try and escape the cross and just somehow go straight to glory. He could get there, thousands of angels at his disposal. He knows he has a fight on his hands. Obedience is going to be hard. Who walks to their death on purpose? But it's what I have to do. You know that this opposition, this temptation to change up the rhythm and avoid the cross was front and center in the whole life of Christ, right? In the wilderness, at the beginning of his ministry, Satan tempts him and puts glory before him and says, take it right now. It's yours today. Avoid the plan of the Father. And Jesus refuses. At the very end of this story, Jesus ends up in the garden. And what's the temptation? To avoid the plan of the Father, right? Father, if there is any way other than me drinking the cup of your wrath, suffering and death, let it be. But not my will, yours be done. That is a battle with satanic opposition. I don't know if you guys saw the passion, but the first scene was in the garden. And he had little Satan crawling around in the trees over there. So, you know, theologically correct guy. I was like, there's no devil in the garden. Why did Mel Gibson put that in there? He's more right than me. Throughout this whole story, Satan's opposition is change the rhythm. Don't suffer. Don't go to the cross. That's what we see in this text. Peter imploring him to avoid and escape and remove the cross. The good news of the gospel is that he wouldn't do it. He didn't do it. Instead, he walks the road that his father had laid out for him. At the end of this gospel, he dies a bloody death, knowingly and willingly. He endures suffering and a very shameful death on a cross. And in doing so, he atones for the sins of this world. 
And then, like he's been saying, after three days, he rises again. And his rhythm of death first leads to life unspeakable and glorious, resurrection life as the king of all kings. In our text, Jesus is getting us ready for the end of the story. He wants you to see the rhythm that's coming of death and then resurrection for your salvation. And then Jesus does something that to me is just as surprising as as the first part of this text. He takes his story and his rhythm and he demands that his disciples make it their story and their rhythm. And calling the crowds to himself with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. So this rhythm of the gospel is not just something that Jesus needed to embrace. Jesus is calling you to die as well. To die to self, to die to sin, to die to the passions and pursuits and preferences of the natural man, to die to caring about the applause and the acclaim and the approval of this world, to die to your rights for comfort and revenge. To follow Christ is to die. This is what he means when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Cross means what? Death. And a very shameful, awful death that the world would say, are you crazy? You died on a cross? Wretched. And don't miss the verb in there. Take up his cross. If you were condemned to die on a cross in the time of the Romans, how was it that your cross would get to the place where you would be killed? How did it get there? You carried it. And Jesus says, here's what discipleship is. Every day you wake up and you put your cross on your shoulder. And you go and you die. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, beautifully, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Okay, now if we are honest today, if the Holy Spirit is giving us any grace at all in our hearing of these words... Those words right there are as stunning to us as Americans, even American Christians, as Jesus' first set of words would have been to Peter and the disciples about him needing to die as the Messiah. Do you remember Peter's reaction when Jesus said death is the first step of the rhythm? It's the same thing that happens in our souls when someone looks at us and says, hey, American, the gospel is this, die, give up your life. Man, we do not roll that way in this country and not in this state and not in these cities just north of Boston. We are winners. We are movers. We are shakers. We know what we want and we go get what we want. The good life is within our grasp. We can get there. We don't want to hear about a gospel of come and die and lose your life. We want the gospel of go and win and gain your life. And we American preachers know that this is what you're used to and you want to hear. And so we have amended the gospel to make it sound that way to you because that's what you want. We don't 
any longer preach the, that Jesus died on his way to resurrection life, and that rhythm needs to be ours. No. Here's what we preach. Jesus died, but we don't have to. He endured suffering and shame and rejection and death, but that's not a road that we have to walk. He did the hard work so that we could just have the glory. His rhythm was brutal, hard death, and then glorious resurrection life. Ours is all glory and life. He endured a cross for the joy set before him. We can avoid the cross, man, for the joy that's set before us. This is our gospel. And you know that my job as a pastor, our job as pastors in love for you and care for your soul is to shake you and say, that is a false and ridiculous gospel. But you're going to hear it over and over and over again. Instead of die to yourself, lose your life, you will be told you can do this thing. Go gain, take hold of your life. All right, now let me give you an example. We do this on purpose not to be better than someone else and rag on them, but because we have the care of souls given to us and we need to look you in the eye and love you and pastor you. I could go to 200 different books. I just want to go to this one, very recent, and you're going to come across it. National best-selling book that preaches this gospel. It's called Every Day a Friday. This is the hook of the book. There's been a recent survey done, and statistics show that Americans are 10% happier on Fridays than they are all the other days of the week. And so wouldn't it be good news, wouldn't it be great news if we could carry that 10% boost to our happiness into all the days of our life? So writes this book and says that his purpose is to get you to take hold of that gospel. Here it is, to arrange your mind so that you choose Friday happiness and glory all week long. This is the rhythm that God intends for you, Christian. Every day of your life can be a Friday. Can you feel what has happened in this gospel? And it's just an example of many that are out there. What happened to the dying? It's gone. What happened to the denying of yourself today? It's gone. What happened to the losing of your rights and your way and your happiness? Losing. It's gone. The rhythm of God is no longer you die and then you live. The rhythm has been changed to be you arrange your mind and you go straight to life. This isn't what we get in this text, is it? Every day you die is the message of this text. And then you begin to live. Okay, now when I first checked out this book, the title infuriated me. Ooh! I'm a theological neatnik, right? And so I was like, how theologically sloppy do you have to be as a Christian pastor to say that it is a good thing if every day is a Friday? Come on! Friday for the Christian pastor, for the Christian is the darkest, nastiest, most vicious day of days. Friday 
is the day that the infinitely glorious and holy Son of God bore the unimaginable weight of the fury of the Father against the sins of the world on His shoulders. Friday was the day that all of my rebellion was poured out on Christ, and He suffered, and He died. Friday is a brutal day in the Christian faith. Every day of Friday, if anything, it would be every day a Sunday when Jesus is vindicated and he steps into resurrection life. But having memorized this text this week, I've realized that, okay, if you want to think rightly about the title, this could be really helpful to you in your pursuit of Christ. Every day of Friday, good, but not every day an American Friday where you're going for a 10% happiness boost. Every day, a Jesus Friday, where, just like our Savior, for his glory, we take up our cross and we go die. The gospel will cost you everything. That's the rhythm. You will be brought to a place where you die to every single thing that you were, everything that you thought was important in this life. Everything that you held dear, your comfort, your reputation, your vanity, your ease, your pride, your sin, you will have to look at all of it and say, I die. Until you do, no matter how you arrange your mind, you will not have the Jesus kind of life. But when you do, when you begin to walk in step with the truth of this gospel, with the rhythm of this gospel, And I'm talking about first by dying in that capital D way, right? If you're in this room and you have not died to your own righteousness and your own life and your own pursuits of glory and been baptized into the death of Christ for you, you have no life in him. You need to surrender and die. This happens sort of once in a moment or a season of your life, conversion, but it doesn't end there. The rhythm continues. Every day a Friday, every day a cross, every day I say, I die to myself today. When you get there, I cannot even begin to explain the life that Jesus gives to you. I mean, in this sense, every day a Friday, gospel not only misses rhythm one, you know, but it misses rhythm two completely. Rhythm one or step one is die And the American gospel will not have any of that. But what's step two in this rhythm, you guys? After three days, I will rise. Resurrection, life. Whoever loses his life will gain it. Do you know what resurrection life is? Because if you don't, you need to get a vision for this. Let me tell you what it's not. Here we go. It is not a 10% boost on your happiness from Tuesday. If this is all I have to offer you this morning, we have some serious problems up in this church. That is not the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The invitation of the gospel is to give up this petty, sin-stained, brief, fraudulent, worldly life in exchange for a beautiful, inexpressible, rich, pure eternally satisfying, 
infinitely raucous, joyous life. The gospel is not about you gauging what this life has to offer and then me saying, hey, if you add Jesus to the equation, he's going to give you 10% more than that. That's not it. The gospel is about me telling you to abandon this life completely, die in exchange for an infinitely more glorious life in Christ. Do you see why those with eyes to see get really excited about the gospel life together? And so by faith, this year, I want everybody in this room to heed the call of Jesus and to wake up and in every day, in every situation, say, where is my cross? I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to endure suffering. I'm going to die because I know that life follows That's easy for me to say, but you will see that in those situations, it will be just as hard for you to walk that road as it was for Peter and those disciples to walk the road Jesus was asking them to do. And that's because the entire pursuit of our lives up to this moment has been about us receiving glory and not Christ. And so Jesus needs to change your heart for you to say, I got it now. I die for his sake and the sake of the gospel. Here's my last example to drive this home with you. I'm finally coaching hoop again. This is one of my other passions in my life. It's fifth and sixth graders. Everybody's got to play the same amount of time. I can't even yell at the kids. It's terrible. But I can make them do suicide, so they're learning to touch every line. The first few weeks, we're installing this collegiate-level offense with these fifth and sixth graders, and everybody's got a number. One, two, three, four, five, depending who you are on, on, the, on the floor. And at the start of the season, the first few weeks we had to practice, if you were number three, oh man, it was a good thing. Number three was the first person to receive the pass, and he was getting most of the glory because he was getting most of the touches. He would go score, he would dribble, he would be the one to make a pass. Everything was about number three. And then Coach Cruz made things a little more complicated, and he instituted a change. There was going to be other numbers called out. Now we were going to start calling out number one. And number one changes everything. Instead of number three getting the pass, you know what he has to do? He has to come to where number one is, and he has to set a screen and disappear from the play. Told the poor kid, you need to come and die right here. And he comes and he dies and he sacrifices his body and he screens number one's man. And you know what happens next? Number one goes around him to glory. It's just him in the rim, two dribbles, and he lays it in. What has happened in this new rhythm? It's not about number three anymore, is it? What's the call of discipleship and obedience on number three? Because number one deserves the glory. You come and you give up your life and you die. And you rejoice in the fact that everyone watches him go score. This is the gospel. Here's why it makes sense. Because you're not God. Because you're not number one. Because Jesus is God. Because your joy can only be made fullest when you walk in rhythm with the way that God has designed this world. And he has designed it that all boasting is in Christ. And we join in the joy of Jesus when we die and Jesus lives. 
And so your heart needs to be changed to say, my whole life I've been number three. It's been about me, my glory, my way. Give me the rock. Jesus is calling me to say, no, there's no life in that. Here's where there's life. Take up your cross, set your screen, sacrifice yourself. You die. Christ then lives and in him you live. Here's the rhythm I need you to embrace this year. I'm going to die. Every situation with your husband or your wife, every situation in your fatherhood, your motherhood, every situation if you're a child obeying your parents, every difficult, tough place, every battle with sin, don't go grabbing at 10% better. Die to yourself and watch Jesus double back to you, resurrection life. You do that this year and you will have story after story after story of the way that you have rejoiced in the life of Christ in you. That's my hope for you. This is the hardest thing I could ask you to do. Let's ask God's Spirit for some help in getting there. Father, confession, we don't want to die. This doesn't make sense to us. We, we want to be the center. We want it our way. We can do this. I need you to strip us of that nonsense today. First, by giving us a vision of Jesus and his glory and that our life is made whole when he is in his rightful place as Lord and King. And I pray that in every situation, every circumstance, we would not be those who grasp at our, our way, our rights, our preference, but that we would take up our cross and die and receive life and die and receive life that that would be the rhythm of our life together. To get there, you have to change our hearts. You have to convince us that these things are true. You have to give us a vision for the life that is held out for us if we will just die. Come and make disciples here, I pray, in obedience to your command that we do a good job with that and that many others would come to see, I've got the rhythm backwards. I die and I am free from sin. I die and I am free from self, and I am alive to Christ. Come tell that story at our church. I pray that you would. I pray that you would. Amen.